0: Good morning. This is lesson 32 <clears throat> in our study of the book of Hebrews. I hope my voice will last as long as I do on this. <clears throat> um, and I've changed my title a number of times, as uh, as you would expect, and uh, as I always do. And so I'm calling it for the moment, <clears throat> An unshakable Kingdom. And we are focusing on Hebrews 12... Verses eighteen through twenty-nine. I've been thinking about spectacularity uh, as I've uh, been preparing this message. I went back and reminded myself of what it took for the opening ceremony uh, at the uh, Summer Olympics in Beijing, and uh, they're saying that it took a conservative estimate of a hundred million dollars to put on that production. You can't help but ask yourself, uh, when the next Olympic comes along, what will they try to do to top it? And I guess even more than that, what will they pay to try and top it? Uh, all of the fireworks, all of the things <clears throat> that were involved in that were incredible to make it spectacular. And, and it was, for those of us who saw it. And it seems to me that we live in a day where we want things to be spectacular. Uh, I was looking just this last week at, uh, a, a word about the release of a movie called Fast and Furious. And, and that movie is using a new technology. We don't have it yet here at the church. It's, it's, uh, it's a technology that uses these, uh, seats that are electronic. You guys saw that, uh, where the seats actually move. Now, I think I saw this at Disneyland some time ago, where you watch this movie, and when you go up, the seats tip back, and you feel the gravity, and you turn, and, and whatever, but it's, you know, all this razzle-dazzle, so that you can feel what's going on, and you it, it can be more spectacular. That was released this month, and I can't wait for the church edition of those seats. I, and and I'm, I've asked the elders to put that in the budget, just a few hundred thousand dollars, uh, so that we can do that and of course the lighting would be extra uh, that'll be another another little bit and and it would be all for this lesson because we're looking back at Exodus 19 and 20 and so we have to somehow simulate the noise and and the lights and the smoke and whatever and and you know as as funny as that sounds actually it seems to me that that's going on in a lot of churches already some churches, I don't want to know what they pay for their smoke machines. But but they have them, and, and it, it adds to the ambiance of the whole occasion and the, the lighting and all the big productions that go on. And so I think that maybe our text in Hebrews chapter 12 will put some of that spectacularity into a, a proper perspective. Never, I think, in the history of man was any event more spectacular than the giving of the law. If you were to try and reproduce um, somehow all of the phenomena that took place with the giving of the law, you would have one whopping big budget. And even then, it would not approximate the reality of what God did. And our author chooses to look at that uh, that particular uh, incident in in Old Testament history and put that side by side with the Christian's hope and the new kingdom that we are looking for that is yet to come and that is unseen up to this point. But let's think about where we've come in the book of Hebrews. Up through chapter 9, essentially the author has been showing us the superiority of Christ. He is superior to Moses His priesthood is superior to the priesthood of 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 Aaron. His sacrifice is superior. The tabernacle or the place where he dwells in heaven is superior to the earthly tabernacle. All of these things we see played out. But the bottom line is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for sin is vastly superior to the sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament. His one sacrifice, once for all, paid the price for our sin. It never has to be offered again. And having made that sacrifice, our Lord has now ascended to the right hand of the Father where he makes intercession for us. He is a merciful and faithful high priest to whom we may appeal and to whom we may come in time of need for help when you come to chapter 10, you then have the exhortation. Given the fact that the barriers between men and God have been removed by the shed blood of Christ, we are to draw near to him and we are to seek to minister to our brothers and sisters and to encourage them in their faith. And the warning from chapter 10 is that we are not to deliberately persist on in those sins that characterized us in in our pre-Christian days, but we are to walk with him and to draw near. When you come to chapter 11, the author is saying to us, the only way to draw near and to have the benefit of the work of Christ is through faith. And he shows us that all through the Old Testament, Old Testament saints, as well as those in the New, are saved by faith. That is the definitive thing that sets believers apart from unbelievers is their faith in what God has done to provide salvation for men. Uh, And of course, in the New Testament especially, that is clearly focused upon our Lord Jesus Christ, I believe was anticipated in the old. Then we come to chapter 12, where it says, and I think the key word is endurance, endurance we are to run with endurance the race that God has set before us. And we are to endure the difficulties and the adversities of life as though they are indeed the discipline of God the Father. It is God's benevolent work in our life that drives us to Christ and strengthens our faith. And so we are to endure those difficulties and sufferings of life, knowing they come from God and perceiving those as evidence and proof of our sonship. Rather than undermining our faith, it undergirds our faith that God works through adversity in the lives of his people. And then in verses 14 through 17, it basically says, Having been strengthened yourself, now turn your attention to others. And that others has to be qualified. In my opinion, it includes, when I use the word brothers uh, in this instance, I mean your Hebrew brothers, some of whom may be believers who need to be strengthened in their faith, some of whom may be unbelievers who need to be brought to faith, but we are to be sensitive to and ministering to others. And one of the reasons for that is that if they're allowed to, to sort of spring up uh, and, and root up within us, they may not only have destruction for themselves, but they may bring difficulty and disaster within the church. A root of bitterness springing up that causes difficulty within the church itself. Then when you come to verses 18 through 24, you see this comparison of the two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And you see these two areas of comparison that will be played out. And then in verses 25 through 29, you see the words of exhortation and warning that the author has for us. Now, I'm not huge on paraphrases, but but for me, I, I I found it sort of necessary for me to try and get my mental hands around this text. And so let me just give you a paraphrase that I've done for verses 1 through 17. In the presence of those men and women of faith who have lived in Old Testament times, Run the race that God has set before you with endurance, keeping Jesus foremost in your minds, especially the endurance he displayed in completing his mission by enduring the agonies of the cross and of men's rejection. Recognize, too, that part of the race set before you is enduring pain and adversity as divine discipline, metered out by a loving father, which incidentally is also proof of your sonship. Having been encouraged and strengthened by this, you must also pay attention to your brethren, some of whom are weak and some of whom are lost. You are to minister to them for their sakes and because they can become a stumbling block to the saints." You are not to stand idly by, while someone becomes immoral or ungodly, someone like Esau, who had no faith in God and no regard for his promise of spiritual blessing. Consequently, he exchanged his spiritual birthright for a bowl of stew, a decision he could not reverse when he recognized his folly. So let's look now at the, uh, at the contrast that we have between these two mountains. Mount Sinai, where the law was given, and Mount Zion, uh, the heavenly Mount Zion that is coming down, Jerusalem that is coming down out of heaven, that is the kingdom for which we wait. Now, I have to tell you that I really struggled over that word for in verse 18. For you have not come to something that can be touched... And so the question is, what is the relationship between this and what follows and what has gone before? I did not find many commentaries dealing with that. Fortunately, uh, John Piper uh, was one who did, and while I don't see it exactly as he does, I, I, I see it in general terms as he does, and I appreciate the fact that he goes back and links it. Or you can be a wimp like the NIV and just leave the word out and that's exactly what they did they just took the word for I, I i don't know whether the translator said oh this is a tough one let's get rid of this word but but whatever it was they left it out and by the way they left another four out later in the text come on guys get with it everybody else leaves the four whether they understand it or not at least they leave it thank you for that so what is the four four in in these uh in these verses well it seems to me you have to go back to the immediate context, and in particular, he's talking about uh, those who would see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no one becomes uh, bitter, a bitter root that springs up, causing trouble, and no one becomes immoral or godless like Esau. Now, in my opinion, that's the key. He's talking about Esau, And when we think about Esau, we see a man who has no regard for spiritual things. He is the antithesis of chapter 11. He is not like Abraham who looks beyond his death to the city that God is going to bring about, that can look beyond the death of his son Isaac, if that's what has to happen. He can look beyond the death and see that God will raise him from the dead. Esau is a man who can only see the moment. And he has no regard for the spiritual blessings of God and apparently no trust or faith in God. So when the decision comes, <clears throat> what do we say? A bird in the hand is worth two in the in, in the bush? and And most people think that's a good thing to say. You know, he says a bowl of stew is better than a blessing that is not yet seen. And so he takes a bowl of stew as that which is better. So he takes a present pleasure... And he gives that higher priority, and he exchanges that pleasant, at present pleasure for future blessing from God. And and at the time when his father begins to bestow the blessing and he realizes it's all over, uh, then he, he he pleads with tears, but it's too late to change his mind. He's set his course. He's rejected what God has to offer. <clears throat> now, how does that relate to what follows? Well, it seems to me that what we see in verses 18 through 21 is we see this visible, spectacular, present experience that comes with the giving of the law as opposed to that second mountain, Mount Zion, which is that heavenly city that God is providing and preparing for us. And and he's saying... This is really a problem. Esau's problem is not just his problem. It's a problem for you. It's a problem in that church of Hebrew believers. Because there are some people who would rather have immediate present blessing than they would be to wait for the ultimate blessings God has provided. Among them, by the way, would be the disciples. Is it not now that you are going to give us the kingdom? We want to see it and we want to see it now. John the Baptist He wanted to see the kingdom, and he wanted to see it now. And when Jesus seemed to be dallying around and waiting and not bringing it about immediately, then he begins to wonder. The people in Jerusalem receive Jesus, and they think as he makes his triumphal entry, now he's going to throw the rascals out. But it doesn't take long to realize that Jesus is not going to do that, and those who welcome him at his triumphal entry are those who cry, crucify, crucify. So, he's really playing this whole thing out and saying, this is the dilemma that all of us face and we can see it played out by these two mountains and what they symbolize. What's so different about Mount, or what's so important about Mount Sinai? You have to say when you read that description, it is spectacular, is it not? If you just close your eyes and you're reading Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20, or you look at the recap of that in Deuteronomy 4 and 5, you think about what that was like. And, and, and you realize Moses, as much of a man of God as he was, our author says he was scared to death. He was terrified by what took place there. Imagine being on a mountain of all the places to be in the middle of an earthquake to be on a mountain in the midst of an earthquake, to have one mammoth lightning storm, and to have these these sounds that are taking place uh, of thunder, and then these horns that are blowing. And the only thing I can think of that even comes close is driving down the street and hearing these cars with the big bass turned up, and you think they're propelled by the speakers going like this. You know, those speakers are not going to hold a candle to what took place In Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20, incredible. The smoke, probably the smell of what was taking place. All of these things, incredible empirical evidence. I I have to throw that in after Joe Martin was here, but would you not say, for those who say, we have to be able to taste it, see it, smell it, hear it, Man, they had more data input than you could shake a stick at. And yet in the final analysis, nobody believed because of the phenomena. All of the evidence was there in spades, but it didn't it didn't work because they didn't really receive the word and obey it. Uh, in fact, I want to suggest to you the word itself is the problem. Now, follow me on this, but I've been trying to work my way through this, and I've read several of the commentaries that make the comment that when the people of Israel say, uh, don't let God speak to us, you know, you speak to us, that that's Israel's rejection. Now, there may be a sense of that, but remember what God's response is. He says, "You have; they have spoken well. What they're saying is, we're scared to death to get too close to God. We need a mediator. And Moses, you're elected. You're the mediator. You talk to God. Tell us what God's got to say, and we'll do it. Now, they didn't do too well on that last part. But they were right, God said. They needed a mediator. Now, check this out. But when I read Exodus 19 and 20 in particular and and I look at all of that account yes there's the the phenomena uh, that that takes place the spectacular events and yes the people are afraid but my question is when when are they afraid and what when do they draw back <clears throat> when god first manifests himself before the the report of the law being given when god manifests himself there the danger is not for people drawing back. It is, for, it is for the rubberneckers to get too close. It's very clear in the text. God says to Moses, Go back down to the mountain. Set the boundaries and warn the people. Do not come too close. Now, remember on the third day, they were allowed to come closer and to actually be at the base of the mountain. But the, but the rule was, You are not to get too close. When was it that people got to the point where they said, we are scared to death. It was not until after, in both, in, in both Exodus 19 and 20, and in Deuteronomy 4 and 5, it is not until after God has given the law that they are terrified. Here's my take on that. They saw the phenomena, and in and of itself, it was an attraction, and they wanted to look it's sort of like the burning bush. They wanted to take a closer look it was not until after God gave His commandments and they realized, here is what sin is. And here is what separates us from God. They're looking at God's standard for righteousness and they see His power and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not getting too close. So it was not until after God's word came and it is God's word, I think, that frightened them. And it is God's word that ultimately he was trying to get them to respect and obey. Now, why then do you have this statement that says uh, in verse 20, even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. Why was it that the author chooses this as a specific item of God's commands that scares them to death? Here's my take on it, and you can take it or leave it. Animals, so far as sin is concerned, are innocent. Would you not agree? Animals don't raise their fist at God and say, we've had enough of you, go away. They don't yell, crucify, crucify. The Animals don't make that. That's why you had animal sacrifice. Animals were not like Jesus because they weren't human. But they at least did not have sin in the way that men have sin. And what terrifies Israel, I think, is if an innocent animal wanders beyond this forbidden point, he must die. What that says is, this God is holy. If an animal must die for wandering too close, and here's the standard that God has for me drawing close in his laws, I'll never make it. I'll never make it. And so it seems to me that ultimately the fear of Israel is the fear that comes from the law. And remember, Romans says, the law was there to reveal our sin. And indeed, it does that. So you've got the dilemma. Here's God's definition of sin. Here's God's demonstration of His holiness. And Israelites are saying, ooh, we're going to keep our distance. And it makes sense. So there is a sense in which as spectacular as the events of Sinai are, it doesn't produce faith and it doesn't produce obedience. Does it? I mean, I think you could see the story of the Old Testament is no. And the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 3 and chapter 4 made a whole lot of that. They didn't enter into rest. Why? Unbelief and disobedience. So all of this spectacular razzle-dazzle didn't produce faith or obedience. Here's the better kingdom in verses 22 through uh, 24. But you have come. Notice the contrast, verse 18. You have not come, for you have not come. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. So here they are at this Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion like? It is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, remember Hebrews chapter 11, all the men of faith, they died without receiving the promises, they looked forward to a city that, was, that God would make, but not an earthly city because they couldn't return to it. They looked forward to that heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the assembly and congregation of the firstborn, who were enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, To the spirits of the righteous, I take that—that's the—that's the the Old Testament dead saints, who who are believers and will be resurrected, whereas the church seems to be focusing more upon uh, those who are alive. Um, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of something better than Abel's does. Somebody read from Revelation this morning, in in at the Lord's table. But when I read this description, my mind immediately goes back to Revelation 4 and 5, doesn't it? I mean, here you see, you see some strange things like these living creatures. And you're not really quite sure where to put those in your mental categories, but you got the 24 elders. You got myriads of angels. You've got the saints of, of every race and creed and, and place on the, on the planet who are there gathered and they are in fellowship and worship and, and in close proximity with God. And I think the point is in contrast, when people saw who God was under the old covenant, they drew back. When in the, in the new covenant, men see God for who he is, through Christ, they draw near. So in a sense, God is in solitude speaking from heaven and, and everybody scatters. But when you get to the new kingdom... And the new covenant. Now you see all these believers coming together, dwelling in the presence of God, uh, praising God together. It is a, it is an utterly different scene. Now it is spectacular, right? I, I, I don't know how we can represent that. But when you look at Revelation four and five, hey, it's spectacular. I don't know, I don't know about you, but when New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and settles on earth, I'm going to say, wow. That's even better than Sinai. But we haven't seen it yet. We have not seen it yet. So it is something for which we hope, but we haven't seen it. It is something that we believe will happen by faith, but we haven't seen it. Because faith is believing in what we don't see, but believing in what God has spoken and said. So this kingdom must be seen by faith. Notice, by the way, when it comes to its grand finale, it's all about Jesus. God is there, the judge, and we don't fear his presence. But it's all about Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the shedding of his blood. And the interesting way in which the author describes that, he says, the sprinkled blood that speaks of something better than Abel's does. Why does he pick Abel's blood? Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. Remember, God says to Cain, your brother's blood that you, in effect, sprinkled on the earth is crying out to me for judgment, right? Abel's blood cries for judgment. Jesus' blood bestows mercy. And salvation. Would you not agree the sprinkled blood of Jesus is better than the sprinkled blood of Abel? Yes, it is. I think that's his point. What a better kingdom. And it's all because of what Jesus has done. Now, where does this lead the author? It leads him to the exhortation in verses 25 through 29. Take care not to refuse the one who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less shall we if we reject the one who warns from heaven? Interestingly, the New American Standard Version says him. Uh, says the first hymn is uncapitalized. The second hymn is capitalized. So what, what the New American Standard understands that to be saying is, Moses, little h, he warned from earth. God speaks and warns from heaven. If people disregarded the warning that came through Moses and they got in all the trouble they did, how much more is the danger of those who disregard him, God, who speaks from heaven? Now, God spoke through Moses on earth. So ultimately, I think you could say it's God speaking in both instances. But the argument is, if disobedience to God's word in the Old Testament has the severe consequences it does, then given the greater things that came about through Christ, the greater revelation that came through him, and the salvation that came through him, if we reject him who speaks, then that is, of course, a most serious thing. Now look at this. Verse 26, then his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, I will once more shake not only the earth, but heaven too. Now, this phrase, once more, indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is, of created things, so that what is unshaken may remain. Now, I don't know about you, but but I, <laughs> I was thinking about titles, and I, I'm not going to do it, but I was tempted. To title this, There's a Whole Lot of Shaking Going On, and, and uh, that might ring a bell with, with some of you. My question, when I look at this, and I look at the way the author argues, I, I have to say to myself, why does he go to Haggai chapter 2, verse 6? Why does he go there to talk about shaking? There are other texts, which I think in some ways would have been better texts, but let's look at some texts, and I'm talking about earthquakes now, Okay. Earthquakes, shaking that's going to take place. Look at uh, Isaiah chapter 24, verses 18 through 20. For the, This is the second part of verse 18. For the floodgates of the heavens are opened up and the foundations of the earth shake... The earth is broken in pieces. The earth is ripped to shreds. The earth shakes violently. The earth will stagger around like a drunk. It will sway back and forth like a hut in a windstorm. Its sin will weigh it down and it will fall and never get up again. Well, that shaking isn't good shaking. That's shaking like judgment. Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 through 8. Jesus says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Make sure that you are not alarmed, for this must happen, but the end is still to come. For a nation will rise up in arms against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pangs. So earthquakes here are sort of like labor pains. They start small, smaller, the women may not agree with me on this point. But but they get worse. They get more intense, and, and then there's the big event. But what those labor pains say is, something's coming, and you ought to get ready, or get to the hospital. Now look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. Well, let's, look at Revelation, let's go to Revelation 16. Uh, 6, 12 through 17 is another text, but let's look at Revelation 16, verses 17 through 19. Finally, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Then there were flashes of lightning, roaring and clash, crashes of thunder. That sounds a little bit like uh, Exodus 19. There was a tremendous earthquake, an earthquake unequal since humanity has been on the earth. So tremendous was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. So Babylon the Great was remembered before God and was given the cup filled with the wine made of God's furious wrath. The texts that I have cited are texts that say earthquakes are coming and there's going to be the big one. And that's going to be the earthquake of God's judgment. Why does our author go to Habakkuk or Haggai chapter 2? And verse six to talk about shaking when he has all these other shaking texts. Couple of things. Haggai is written at the time that the second temple is being built, right? And what happened when those people, uh, th- that came out of captivity and, and saw this, this, uh, temple, what was it? What was their response? You remember? It, it must have been, must have been really strange. There was joy and rejoicing and weeping. Who were the weepers? The weepers were those who saw, had seen the first temple and they realized that the second temple was seemingly unspectacular and far less glorious than the first. What God says through Haggai, the prophet, is this. I am going to shake the earth. And his emphasis now is not on the judgment. Well, that is true. He's saying, I'm going to shake things up. And I'm, as it were, going to shake the nations. And they're going to come to this temple. And I'm going to bring to this temple greater glory than it ever had before. How could that be so? I would suggest to you it is exactly what we're reading about when our text speaks about Mount Zion. There is the great glory and there is the great temple. It is the one that comes down out of heaven. Now, remember, these Hebrew saints were really caught up with the temple, right? And with Jerusalem. And, and, and the thought of the possibility of it being destroyed was just unbelievable. Remember, the disciples themselves... Mark chapter 13, I think verses 1 and 2. The disciples say to Jesus, as they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they're looking across the valley, and they're looking at the uh, temple that's sitting across the way, and they say, wow, Jesus, isn't this great? Look at the glory of this place. Jesus says, don't get too attached, boys. It's going down. Not one stone will be left on another. They love the glory of that temple. And and you can understand, when they came out of that system, and eventually they get kicked out of the temple and they can't gather there, they miss the spectacular glory. They're just like the people in, in, in Haggai's day, and God is saying, don't worry about the lack of glory of this. What I bring to you is far more glorious. Don't worry about the spectacularity of that that took place related to the law, I've got something far better and far more spectacular. But you have to see it by faith. Okay, let's talk about some things that may be applications for us. One, seeing isn't necessarily believing. I take that back again to Exodus 19 and 20. They saw, they heard, they smelled, they felt. Incredible evidence about who God is. And yet it didn't automatically produce belief. It didn't produce obedience. But believing is seeing. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says. Faith is believing what isn't seen. Faith is believing that whatever we look at here on earth and all of its splendor and glory, whatever, those things are going to be shaken up. And they're going to be sifted out. And uh, all that's going to be left is what God has promised. And that is where the glory is. That's the city that we ought to be focusing on. Secondly, there's going to be a whole lot of shaking going on. Isn't that what this text is saying? I mean, these texts, not only this text, but these texts that from Isaiah, from Matthew, from Revelation, what they're saying is, as the day of God's judgment and deliverance draws near, there are going to be shakings, among other things, there are going to be shakings taking place, and they are anticipatory of the great shake-up of the end. What we are, we should do then as believers is we should expect things are going to shake. When you look at your newspaper and you look at what's going on in the world today, when you look at your IRA and you look at some other things, there's a whole lot of shaking going on, folks. But it isn't anything compared to the big shake up that's coming. But what these shakings do is they remind us of the things that are going to go. These things that we lose, whatever they are, these are the things that are going to burn up and be wood, hey, it's double anyway. So we better not be hanging on to things in the shakeup of this world. We better not be clinging to things that ultimately are going down. What we need to do is to cling to that which is unshakable, and that is God's kingdom, that is God's salvation, that is the redemption of Christ, that is his high priestly ministry, and nothing will shake us from all that he has set to do because of the work of our Lord Jesus. Now, you're going to have to watch me on this one, but I say, uh, hold on to grace. Oh, I didn't say an unshakable kingdom. I better say that. An unshakable kingdom, unshakable saints. If there is anything that ought to characterize Christians today in a world that is shaking in its boots, it is the fact that we are not. Yes, things are being shaken up, but God's kingdom is unshakable. And if we're all shook up, folks, then something's wrong in the category of our faith because what we Hold before us as the goal of what God has promised, the blessings He has promised. Those are items that are absolutely unshakable, and we ought to be unshakable in the light of that. Okay, hold on to grace. When you look at um, the uh, uh, verses 28 and 29, the the final exhortation. So since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us, my translation says, let us give thanks. Most do. Uh, And through this, let us offer worship, pleasing to God, in devotion and awe for our God is indeed a devouring fire. I like the Holman Standard Bible. They alone, I think, got it right. And you know what they say? Let us hold on to grace. Can the word charis mean thanksgiving? Can it mean gratitude? Of course it can. But when I read this text and I start out back in verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. I think what the author is saying is when you look at what's happened, when you look at this dispensation of of the law, and the fact that it didn't produce obedience and faith in and of itself. But the work of Christ does, and it's an unshakable faith. That let's cling to grace. I mean, isn't that what Galatians is all about? Isn't that what Hebrew Christians had to, had to deal with was, was the legalism and the rituals and the promise, if you do this, you get that from the old system. Didn't, wasn't there a temptation to walk away from grace so that I could say, rather than wondering what my acts of obedience are going to produce from Hebrews chapter 11, you might get sawn in half and you might get somebody dead raised. You don't know. I want the certainty of knowing if I do this, God has to do that. And this author says to us, hang on to grace. When he says you've got to believe by faith, faith is through grace. You can't have faith and not have grace. So what he's saying is cling to grace. I think that's the right translation and uh, you you take your pick. But it's certainly a, a valid and legitimate one. E, spectacularity and self-gratification does not make saints. I, I think we're in a day where we really think the more spectacular it is, the more effective it is. And I, I'm going to go back, first of all, to Elijah. Isn't it interesting that Elijah wanted to put on a show up on Mount, another mountain, Mount Carmel? And he wanted to put this razzle-dazzle on. And what he expected and hoped for was that all of the nation would turn and repent. So God, when he goes out into the wilderness and throws in his, his badge, his prophet's badge, and says, I quit. I want my RRA. I'm checking out of here. God takes him 40 days back to that mountain. And he sees all the razzle-dazzle. But God isn't there. And finally, God speaks in a still small voice. What is he saying? God is saying, I don't have to work through spectacularity. I don't have to work through spectacularity. God, through his power and through his spirit, can work in much simpler, and I might even say in these budget-minded days, cheaper ways. God doesn't have to have a big budget. He doesn't have to have spectacular lighting and smoke machines and everything else to make us feel spiritual or to keep us safe or to make us unshakable. Elijah needed to learn. God doesn't need that. He occasionally will do something spectacular. But our text says it was very spectacular, but it didn't really produce eternal results. Something better was needed. And by the way, the work of our Lord Jesus wasn't exactly spectacular either. The people in Jerusalem expected something spectacular when he came into Jerusalem. They didn't get it. There is nothing spectacular, so to speak, about being crucified on a cross. Not from the world's point of view. That's the ultimate humiliation and defeat. Now, in our point of view, it is spectacular, but in a different way. It's not all the razzle-dazzle that we might want. The church today needs to recognize it isn't spectacularity that converts lost sinners. Paul says, we have a simple message. We preach Christ and Christ crucified. Now, the Jews, uh, the Greeks, and, and the Hebrews, they're not really too impressed, right? You don't change the message. The message is, we preach Christ crucified. Because that's what Hebrews is all about. That's where the great transformation takes place. That's how men draw near to God, is through Christ and the shedding of his blood. And by the way, Paul says, it isn't through razzle-dazzle preaching either, lucky for you. It isn't razzle-dazzle preaching. He says, we don't use fancy uh, uh, manipulative methods as others do. We simply proclaim Christ. And we rest in the spirit to produce the results. Spectacularity, I don't think, is essential. I'm not even sure it's profitable. Well, if it isn't spectacularity, and by the way, it isn't. It's simplicity. From spectacularity and complexity to simplicity, there is nothing simpler than a cross. There is nothing simpler than one sacrifice made once for all. When I was reading through the Old Testament law, I I was reading in Exodus and Leviticus, and you got all these laws and sacrifices. My mind's just going like this. And then you get to Numbers, and you realize that that incredibly complicated system where you have all of these pieces of the tabernacle and all these people designated and you have to leave and and, and certain groups go off first and others go second and whatever. Do you realize how sophisticated and complicated that is? I don't know how they did it without computers. But there's just this incredibly complicated system. And you come to the New Testament and it's all about Jesus. And, And it comes down to the simplicity of two elements. Bread, which speaks of our Lord's perfection, and humanity, and the wine, which speaks of his shed blood. It's that simple. It's just trust Jesus. That's what the gospel's about, and that's what does it, not the razzle dazzle stuff. What does it say to the original uh, recipients? Well, it seems to me that they were those who were really caught up with the spectacularity. I think that when they read this stuff about the law being given and whatever, remember, it was Moses and it was the law that they were really caught up with. And that's what they were tempted to go back to. Leave the simplicity and the plain Jane ness of a meeting in a home around simple elements without all of the sophistication and complexity of that old system. If I just went back then I'd have some of that glory and splendor. Little did they know, in my mind and the timing, that that temple's going down, that they won't be meeting there for long. Can you imagine if it was 68 or whatever? It depends on where you want to break your lines. But, you know, and here's somebody that decides I'm going back to, to uh, Judaism. Man, when 70 comes, what a huge letdown that's going to be, right? Because that's all going down. All the glory and spectacularity of the temple in that system, gone. So this is a word to them. That which you prize so greatly and which looks so tempting and alluring to you, it is nothing compared to the kingdom that is coming. And that coming kingdom is unshakable. So don't get shook up by the difficulties and the adversity of today, because God is using those to demonstrate his love and care. And I would simply say this. How does the church manifest the glory of God? Not by its lighting system and all of the other things that go on. And they're not automatically wrong. But I'm simply saying it is by the simple acts of doing the very things that he says in chapter 13. Some people think that 13 is somehow kind of an add-on. I don't. I think what he's saying is it's not the spectacularity. It's this blood and guts things about entertaining strangers about living faithfully in your marriage, about caring for your brothers and sisters who suffer for their faith, that's where we're going to mark ourselves out as the children of God. That's where people are going to see our faith is genuine and that they need Jesus. Our lighting system won't get them. But our lives will proclaim a message they need to hear. Father, thank you for this text. What a wonderful thing you've given to us. What a wonderful hope lies before us in that unshakable kingdom. Help us to be unshakable saints. Help us not to look for spectacular things to do to get the world's attention or to outdo the movie theaters or whatever, but simply to live out the Lord Jesus and minister to hurting people and to worship you in simplicity and truth.